Welcome to Wild and Weird. I'm Jenna. And I'm Audrey. And we're so glad you're here. Jenna, I wasn't sure if you were going to lead us in there. I know. I always kind of forget that I start. And so then we do like the clap thing to match our audio. And afterwards, we just sat in silence for like 30 seconds. It was good. I remembered. It's my job. I start. You finish. Um, anything new in your life? Actually, Audrey, that's the most accurate thing of our lives, that I will start a project and you finish it. How do you think we're sitting here right now, Jenna? Wow. So, no, nothing is new in my life, but now I feel compelled to tell everyone that every baking project I have taken on in my entire life, Audrey has finished for me. Every single one. And then once I moved, you were like, uh, I started making something and halfway through I got tired. Yeah. And you didn't finish it. You conditioned me. I think you just stuck it in the freezer and ate raw cookie dough. Oh, I absolutely would. Big fan. Big fan of raw cookie dough. But yeah, you conditioned me to not finish things. Did I condition you or did you condition me? Okay, no, I think it's you because if you know Audrey, then she always comes over and she's like, you're doing that wrong. Let me do it for you so it's done right. And then I just learned to let her do it for me. Work smarter, not harder. I wouldn't do that to you if you did it right in the first place. (laughs) This is such a true definition of our relationship. But like it. I come over when you're cutting a cucumber like Kendall Jenner. Okay, excuse me. I could do that a little more gracefully. I also recognize that I'm not great at a lot of household tasks. But I'm sorry, I never answered your question really. No, nothing's new with me. Yeah, what were you saying? Judging based to like two weeks ago. Um, I watched the last episode of Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. I did too. And so we, okay, as we're recording this, the reunion is not out, but the last episode is. um, And they recorded it like while she was getting sentenced, which is crazy. Yeah, they, for the Jen Shaw trial, they were recording it for that, which I was so curious about because all season she had proclaimed being innocent Mm -hmm. and then you actually go to the trial and she pleads guilty days before she's still saying she's innocent which is just so strange like we were wondering what happened between this time where she's saying she's innocent and then she pleads guilty one of the girls on the show theorized that her husband came across something Mm -hmm. he didn't want out there or he knew would convict her or something And so she pled guilty. But that's just a theory. No fact behind it there. Yeah, I'm almost a little sad there wasn't a trial because then we'd get more information. But I'm really glad that they showed her, like, leading up to trial. Yeah, but I have gone through everything else. So now I'm starting Real Housewives of Atlanta from season one. Audrey, no. 
absolutely not. I thought you would consult me before you made your next Real Housewives decision. I'm so sorry. What do you think I need to go to next? Potomac. Real Mm. Housewives of Potomac. If only for you to get to the Nicki Minaj hosts the reunion episode. Like that, I think, is my peak Real Housewives moment. Okay. I watched the first episode or two and I wasn't really into it. I get that. It gets better with time. But I wouldn't say I was really into Atlanta either. I don't know. I thought I just had to throw Potomac in the ring next time. Okay. Maybe if I decide to, I'll just like put Atlanta on pause and go back. Honestly, they're both great. I do love Atlanta. I can't, I can't complain. I just want you to see the Nicki Minaj episode because I loved that. Okay, I didn't know that there was an episode with Nicki Minaj, so it might persuade me. Is that enough Real Housewife tangent for everyone? Yeah, that's probably too much. Do you have anything new this week? Trying to think. I don't have anything new. That's not like a negative, nothing's exciting. That's like a, sometimes you want a day where you don't do anything. Mm -hmm. And I got one of those, so I can't complain. Good. Okay, I like that. Um, Audrey... I have no idea what your story is this week. Um, it's true crime, but it's Ooh. not like gruesome, terrible deaths, true crime, like I did my last two stories. So mm-hmm. hopefully it'll be a little bit more enjoyable. But I was going to cover the story of Charles Ponzi. The first Ponzi scheme? So it's not the first Ponzi scheme, but he is the namesake of the Ponzi scheme. Of the Ponzi scheme? Okay, that's so fun. I am not familiar with Charles very much, um, but just hearing the last name, I was like, oh, a Ponzi scheme. He's the namesake for the Ponzi scheme, and most of us have likely heard of him, not actually of him as the person, but of Ponzi schemes, which actually in recent years was made very famous by the Bernie Madoff investing scam, which happened in mid-2000s, like 2008. I'm not familiar with that. Ooh, girl. It is the largest investing scam ever done, and it was $65 billion. Holy criminy. Yeah, he went to jail for it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I bet so. But let's learn about Charles Ponzi, why don't we? Okay. Again, I have a story with some names I'm not going to be able to pronounce. So just roll with it, okay? I'll do my best. I'll roll. I'm ready to roll. So Charles Ponzi was born Carlo Pietro Giovanni Glermo Tobaldo Ponzi. That is a lot of names. Mm-hmm. He was born March 3rd, 1882 in Lugo, Italy. His parents were wealthy and well-to-do, but by the time Charles was born, they had fallen on hard times and did not have much money, and he considered them borderline poor. So, there's not much known about his early life, but it's believed that Charles started showing criminal tendencies as a child and would steal from his parents and even priests at their church. You know it's really bad when a child is stealing from a priest. Yeah. Like, we're not headed anywhere positive right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Charles attended Sapienza University in Rome. While there, he had wealthy friends that he tried to keep up with and would go out with them to bars and restaurants and to the opera, and he ended up spending most, if not all, of his money trying to keep up with his friends. 
He admits he was not a very good student, and by the end of his four years at school, he left with no degree and no money. Oh, Charles. Oh, no degree either? Mm -hmm. At least if you're, like, broke, you could get a job with your degree. Yeah, but he was a bad student, so no degree. Oh, bummer. During the time he was at school, there were many Italians migrating to the U.S. to find fortune and come back very rich. Charles was encouraged by his family to do the same thing because they had still not returned to the level of wealth they had before Charles was born. That is such a weird concept to just send your kid to a different country and be like, yeah, go get rich for us, please. Yeah, and they were going to the States and getting rich, but didn't really have a specific way that they're going over there and going about getting money. Yeah, I know there were a lot of gold rush kind of Mm -hmm. things, but that is just interesting. I would not have known that that was a thing. And this is very early 1900s. So on November 15th, 1903, a 21-year-old Charles boarded a ship to America. The ship was the SS Vancouver and was set to arrive in Boston. Charles boarded the ship with $200, and on the voyage, he had gambled away most of his money. By the time he arrived in the U.S., he stated, I landed in this country with $2.50 in cash and $1 million in hopes. These hopes never left me. If I were his parents, I would not have bet our last dime on him going and being successful. Because the fact that he spent all of his money on a boat just gambling, he's not very good with his finances. So he showed up in the States with $2.50, which today is around $83. So really, if you send your child to the States with what was probably like $1,000 total, and he ends up with like 80 bucks by the time they get there, they're probably not going to send you home a whole lot. No, he's not going to provide for the family. That's the vibes that I'm getting. Yeah. Once in America, Charles learned English and worked odd jobs, kind of like a jack-of-all-trades. He stated, I tried my hand at everything, from grocery clerk to road drummer, from sewing machine repairman to insurance salesman, from factory hand to kitchen and dining room help. And some of the jobs I lasted no time, and others I lasted longer. Often I would be fired. Oftener, I would quit on my own accord, either disgusted or to avoid being fired. So he just doesn't want a job. It's like he's willing to work. Yeah, he'll like work for the moment for the money, but not long term. He wants to get the job and be rich immediately. Charles had no problem finding a job and tried just about everything, but was not the model employee for most. In some of the instances of him being fired, it was because of theft or shortchanging customers. Sounds like something that Ponzi would do. Yes. Not surprised. In the first few years he was in America, he moved around a lot. He had lived in many cities, including New York, New Haven, Connecticut, Pittsburgh, Providence, Rhode Island, and even ended up in Montreal, Canada. That is a lot. In 1907, while in Montreal, he worked as a bank teller at the Banco Zarossi Bank, which was started by Luigi, or Louis Zarossi, for the many Italian immigrants arriving to the area. Okay, so he found his, like, Italian community... Yes, and it was started by an Italian for other Italians. But while working there, Charles first saw the scheme of robbing Peter to pay Paul, which is ultimately the type of scheme Charles became known for and is what is now called a Ponzi scheme. Okay. 
So at the bank, Zerasi paid 60% interest on deposits, which was doubled the rate of many other banks at the time. He was gaining many new accounts because of this. While working there, Charles worked his way up to bank manager, where he found out about the financial trouble the bank was in and learned that Zerasi was not paying out the interest payments with profits from investments, but paying them using money from new deposits and new accounts started at the bank. Mm-hmm. Typical. So no surprise, the bank eventually failed. Yeah. Yeah, Zerasi fled to Mexico with a large amount of money he had taken from the bank. So he took money from people and fled. That in Charles is like, oh, genius. Yeah, he's like, uh, 100%, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, you know what? Great idea. Charles stayed in Montreal after losing his job at the bank and lived in Sarasi's house, helping take care of his family. Charles wanted to return to the U.S., but since he had lost his job, he had no money and knew the move would be expensive. Because of this, he obviously turned to crime. Mm-hmm. I thought we were headed that direction. Yes, and we keep going that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, there's only one direction. It's inevitable. Yeah. He went to Canadian Warehousing, which was a former customer at Bianco Sarasi. When he went to the office, no one was there. So he wrote himself a check from a checkbook he found for $423.58, which today, Jenna, can you guess how much that would be? $5,247. Er, wrong. $13,650. Damn! Right? That's a lot. Also, a very specific number. It is, and I don't know why he chose that number, or if he just saw that that's, like, what was left in the account, mm-hmm. but a very specific number. Charles was arrested shortly after writing this check because of the large purchases he was making. He ended up spending three years in St. Vincent de Paul Federal Penitentiary in Montreal with the inmate number of 6660. Nuh-uh. Yeah. Okay, that's kind of brilliant. I was like, that means nothing to the story, but I kind of like it. No, I like to know that. I feel like that makes you the baddest one on the cell block. Yeah, but I also be like, oh, that's going to give me bad luck. Oh, yeah, I would be terrified personally, but I bet in that environment, you're like, oh, no, this is what we're here for. Yeah. After his release in 1911, he moved back to the U.S. and began smuggling illegal Italian immigrants across the U.S.-Canada border. He was soon caught for this as well and spent two years in Atlanta prison, which they did not tell me where that one was, so I'm not sure, but it was not in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. It was still up north. While there, he became a translator for the prison warden and became friends with Ignacio the Wolf, Lupo, and Charles W. Morris. After his release in 1917, Charles noticed Rose Gineco and immediately fell in love, describing her as, quote, one glance at her at the picture of loveliness and kindness and clean vivacity. One look into her deep, dark, smiling eyes at the pretty round face framed in background of gorgeous curls. I was no longer able to remove my eyes from her. So she's really hot. Yeah. Charles was like, yo, I need you because you're so hot. It's like, I'm all about that girl. Those curls, girl. Rose and Charles married in February of 1918. And again, Charles worked odd jobs to support them, but eventually lost his job and decided to open an office in Boston. 
where he sold business ideas and contracts to Europe. Not totally sure how you can make money doing that. Yeah, I've never heard of this career before. No. But maybe I should look into it. I love ideas. Can I sell them? Well, I don't think it worked out for him. Yeah, probably shouldn't take career advice from Charles Ponzi. No. And also imagine the work it would go through to try and sell like ideas to Europe in the 1900s. Yeah, everything has to get sent via letter that takes like two months before you hear back. I think they had phones by then. Google, when was the phone invented? Oh, 1876. Oh, wow. Let's see when it was mainstream. The 1930s, it was common to see them in homes. Okay. So you could have called some people for, like, business use. Yeah, but regardless, it would be a little difficult to have, like, transcontinental business matters happening. Yeah. So it was shortly after he started his business selling ideas, he received a letter from a Spanish company with a catalog that included an International Reply Coupon, or IRC. An IRC is a coupon that can be exchanged for postage stamps. Often they were used if you mailed a letter to someone, you would include an IRC so that they could use it for postage to mail a letter back to you. They're accepted by all Universal Postal Union countries. After World War I, many European IRCs could be purchased at a very low rate in exchange in America for more. Charles realized he could use IRCs to his advantage and purchase them in one country and use exchange rate differences in another country to make a small profit. Okay, I see it. This doesn't sound totally illegal. Not yet. Okay. Just wait. Yeah. So, doing this with a small number of IRCs is not super profitable, but you can make some money off of it. But Charles didn't want to just make a little money. He decided he wanted to do it on a very large scale. Of course he did. In January of 1920, Charles started a company called Securities Exchange Company, which I was confused a little bit at first. Maybe it was Securities Exchange Commission, but no, a security exchange company where he sold stock advertising a 50% interest payment after 90 days because their money was used to buy IRCs in other countries and redeemed in the U.S. Okay, so people would invest into him buying IRCs and then redeeming them for a profit. Yes, so he was like the one that purchased them from the other countries at a lower rate with their money, and then they would make a profit when he sold them. Okay. I follow. The thing is, if Charles would have actually used the money to do this, he most likely would have made investors lots of money and stayed legal, doing everything Mm -hmm. okay. That would be too easy. But instead, he didn't use the money to buy IRCs and just used new investors' money to pay the old investors. Yeah. Of course. I mean, he was inspired by his previous work experience. Yes. Why wouldn't you use the new money to pay the old investors? His early investors were being paid out at a very high rate, and you could not get these rates anywhere else, and they were paid promptly each month. This made others very interested in his business, and he got many more investors to start investing in his company after seeing other people making money from him. Okay, I hate to admit this, but I think I would fall for this bullshit. Yes, so he started his company in January, 
And uh-huh. I definitely am like, oh, man, they're making some good money. I'd want to make some money, too. Yeah. You know? By June 1920. So he started in January, and now it's June. People had invested $2.5 million with him, which today is equivalent to $34 million. Okay, that's a lot. Especially for postage stamps. Lots of money. And where did he keep it? Charles kept the money his investors were giving him in the Hanover Trust and Bank of Boston. Because of the large amount of money he was keeping there, he used this to his advantage and kind of made the bank do things at his will. And he even became the bank president. Nuh-uh. Seems totally fine, right? Manipulate your way up. Mm -hmm. All the way to the top. His investors were even mortgaging their homes with him and investing their life savings. Many investors did not take payments, but reinvested their profits with him. That would be great for his scheme. Just reinvesting your profits. He's like, great, I'll just keep all of it. Yes. So instead of taking payments, people were reinvesting. So he was just continuing to keep that money. He wasn't making payments to people, and his amount of wealth was just growing. Mm-hmm. Investors included his friends and family and even his brother-in-law, and he even had 75% of the Boston police force invested with him. Oh, shoot. That's So he kind of owns the bank and the police force. Yes. And he had a range of investors from people who were young, working like their first jobs, investing just a few dollars to very wealthy individuals and older people who had invested their entire life savings. And during this time, Charles and Rose became very wealthy very quickly, if you're not surprised by that, I'm guessing. Yeah, I can imagine. They bought a 12-room mansion where they had many employees to keep up their home and even had a custom limousine made. And obviously... Even their employees invested with them. Oh, no. Okay. I was upset about the friends and family part of it, but the employees part is actually the worst. The custom limousine that they had, um, the chauffeur for it even invested with them. They have just about everyone investing. Even though Rose and Charles became millionaires at what felt like overnight, reality it was about six months, but felt like overnight, Believe it or not, Charles did not have everything figured out. How am I not surprised? This one actually kind of, like, when I read this, it kind of blew my mind. Really? So he was originally using the investor's money to pay off other investors, but he had not figured out how to exchange the IRCs people are investing in into cash. So he didn't even know how to do any of what he... Yeah, yeah, tell me. So it grew at such a rate that he was unable to keep up with it. And if you would order some from, like, Italy or something, and it's like, okay, I'm going to buy 100, on a ship 100 of those coupons would come over, and they could be exchanged. But it was impossible for him to do this because the number of IRCs needed to make a profit for them. So his first... 18 investors invested with him in January of 1920, and in total, they had invested about $1,800. To make a profit for them, he would need to purchase 53,000 postal coupons and sell them in America. That's a lot of postal coupons. Yes, but if you remember how much he had gained in the last six months. Yeah, his $2 million. 
And by this point, he had close to $3 million that were invested with him. And he would need an entire ship the size of the Titanic filled with just coupons to be brought to the U.S. to be exchanged. That's insane. That's so much. So he was legitimately just taking their money and not even doing any of the business he claimed he was just taking new investors money and giving it to old investors as their interest yeah okay because i think in my head i like wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt and think he had done a little bit oh no irc stuff but no okay and he figured that because many investors were reinvesting their money, he didn't actually need to buy IRCs yet and didn't need to exchange them for a profit until they actually wanted to withdraw their money. So then he was just going to hire the Titanic. Well, I think in ho- he hoped that they would just take their money out like one at a time. So then he could buy like 10,000 of them, 20,000 mm-hmm. of them, rather than $3 million worth. Yeah, yeah. So, as you can guess, rising to very, very wealthy in a matter of six months, uh, through some red flags. Mm-hmm. Very big red flags. Yes. Uh, Charles is wearing a red flag. Yeah, he is a red flag. <laughs> it brought a lot of suspicion to him and his company, and a Boston financial writer wrote an article that Charles could not be legally running his business with such high returns to investors. So this writer was questioning his business practices. So what do you think Charles did? He doubled down. He sued the writer. Uh Uh-uh. Saying that he was lying. Oh, brilliant. Charles won and received $500,000 in damages. Nuh-uh, he won? Oh, shit, and that's a lot of money. Mm Mm-hmm. I never expected it to be that high. So after Charles won this lawsuit, on July 24th, 1920, the Boston Post printed an article about Charles that showed him in a very good light, and it was very favorable to him. Thus, this brought many more investors to him, and the day after the article was published, he had thousands of people waiting outside of his office to invest with him. Uh Uh-uh. So he's really pulling it off. Yes. So... One person questioned him. He sued them. He won. So people are like, this guy has to be honest. Yeah. It, like, lends so much credibility. Absolutely. I'm curious, though, how he won. Like, how did he win this lawsuit where he's, like, proving he has good business practices when he doesn't? He won because the guy published an article and he basically claimed defamation. Yeah, okay, and the guy didn't necessarily have, like, facts or data, evidence. Well, and also, if you think about it, he has 75% of the police force on his side. Oh, an excellent point. Mm -hmm. And he could just, like, pay the judge. Mm -hmm. Who probably was invested with him as well. Yeah, I believe it. So, despite this story being printed in the Boston Post, the editor of the Boston Post did not really believe that Charles was running his business legally, And even though they posted that, he was like, I still think we need to investigate. So Mm -hmm. he assigned a few investigative reporters to the case. Two days after the original article that the Boston Post published, they published another article that had questions about Charles' money and where the money was coming from. Mm -hmm. So 
the 24th of July, they publish one saying, oh my gosh, she's amazing. He's great. And then on the 26th, they publish one like, here are some questions we have about him. But what happened on the 25th? Thousands of people invested with him. Thousands. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Like, if they had questions, maybe not post the first one that's, like, so favorable until you have Mm -hmm. more information. But as the editor, he probably has to just be non-biased and post what his writers are coming up with, you know? Yeah. So, one of the many questions was, if this is such a great investment... Why doesn't Charles invest in his own company? Oh, an excellent point. Right? Another thing that they pointed out was if the company was making the profit that they are claiming, they would have to invest in 160 million postal coupons. But guess how many were in circulation at the time? How many? 27,000. Okay, this wins. Right? That wins Most Compelling Evidence Award. I would think if I was an investor to be like, oh, I haven't really seen that many postal coupons going around. Like, is this really happening? But they literally have, like, a minuscule fraction of the amount needed to make the profits that he's claiming in circulation. Yeah. That tears down his authenticity I guess maybe he could claim that he wasn't using it until people wanted to pull their money out. But you would still think they are still believing that their money is in their those IRCs. Mm-hmm. So when they reinvest, they're just buying more. Yeah. So during this time, Charles hired William McMasters, who was a publicist, to do work for the company. While working there, he became very suspicious of Charles and his business practices and even later described Charles as, quote, a financial idiot who's robbing Peter to pay Paul. Is that where that comes from? That phrase? So it's a common phrase for that business practice, robbing Peter to pay Paul. So Paul would be the original investors and Peter would be the new investors. So they're taking money from the new investors to pay the old ones. Yeah, that makes sense. So McMasters went to his former employer with this information, and his former employer was like, hey, if this is what's going on, we'll give you $5,000 for this story. So he sold it, and on August 2nd, it was printed in the Boston Post. July 24th was the first one. This one's August 2nd. So we're like, like they are moving. So this is like a week later. Yes. The wheels of justice. Well, not really justice. The wheels of investigation are moving. In a weird way, him suing that guy who was sketchy about him might have been his downfall because he, like, brought the attention on himself by winning, and then that is what caused the suspicion. hmm Weird. Because if the articles wouldn't have come out in the first place, he wouldn't have, like, a large influx of people or a large wave of people leaving yeah and since it was so many articles like back to back this most recent article that came from mcmasters claimed that charles was 4.5 million dollars in debt even though he claimed to have seven million dollars in assets so even before this information could be proved or not investors started withdrawing their money at a crazy rate i would too this caused charles account to be overdrawn 
and Hanover Trust, the bank, where Charles kept his money and was the president, was ordered to not pay out any more checks to investors. Oh, yeah, because he's also in charge of the bank. Yep. Oh, shoot. So on August 11th, like a, a week and a few days after that article, the Boston Post published a front-page story that outlined the criminal acts of Charles, including his two previous arrests and convictions. And on August 12th, the value of Hanover Trust dropped from $1.5 million to $1 million after they had to use their money to cover the overdrafts from investors. Mm. Charles surrendered to authorities later that day and was charged with 86 counts of mail fraud for sending letters to telling investors their notes had matured. And he was released on $25,000 bail and immediately arrested again on charges from the state of larceny. He was not released on bail this time due to fears he Mm -hmm. would flee. Yeah, I can imagine. He went from such a high high to such a low low in like a week and a half. Yeah. I can't. Like the world crashed down. Like in two weeks, his life Mm -hmm. immediately fell out from under him. I kind of feel bad for his wife because she probably didn't know anything and then is so confused. I mostly feel bad for investors. Yes. But I think that his scheme could have kept going for years if it didn't get called out like this. it was working. Yeah. But it's also like there's no way that you could actually have that return. So in the end, investors received less than 30 cents on the dollar on their investments. That's so sad. I'm glad they got something back, Mm -hmm. but that sucks. And a total of around $20 million or over $200 million in today's money was lost. Whoa. For a second, when you said the $20 million, I thought that was already in today's money. No. Whoa. That's so much money back then. I don't know if he had all of that at the bank that they're talking about, but... That's, he had had that much money invested with him and more. Throughout the scheme. That's insane. And that it only went for like seven months. Mm-hmm. Charles pled guilty to the charges of mail fraud on November 1st, 1920. Even though he could have been sentenced to life in prison if he went through the court system and was found guilty. But pleading guilty made it so he only had to spend five years in federal prison. That is a really weird alternative option. Yes. Like, it's a weird way to game the system. Mm-hmm. I guess it does really, like, promote you wanting to plead guilty. Yeah. I thought it was crazy that he got five years in a federal prison instead of life. Like, he yeah. lost $20 million Yeah, and got five years. But just wait. He was released after three and a half. No way. Mm-hmm. Three and a half years is not remotely enough. But he was almost immediately indicted on 22 charges of larceny from the state. But he was really surprised by this because he thought the larceny charges were dropped after his original plea of guilty for the mail fraud charges. So he sued the state. Nuh-uh. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court upheld the charges of larceny and said that Charles pleading guilty to the charges that were on the federal level have nothing to do with state-level charges. 
So they're completely separate. So he would have to like go through the system on both. He can't okay. say, he can't plead down both. It's just one at a time. That makes sense. So Charles pled innocent for this, and he was acquitted for the first 10 counts of larceny. He was tried again for five more counts, and the jury was deadlocked on the second trial. Huh. So he had to be retried again, and on the third try, he was found guilty of those last five and sentenced to seven to nine years in prison. Wow. But obviously, Charles appealed his conviction and was released on bail in 1925 while it was going through that appeals process to see if he could get a new trial. Mm-hmm. So he fled to Jacksonville, Florida. It's a good place to be. And I mean, I don't know why they think that releasing him was a good idea whatsoever. Yeah, of course he's going to run. Yeah, especially after seeing his boss run to Mexico. Yeah, he probably just regrets not running sooner. Yeah. Can we think, what do you think he did while he was in Jacksonville? Maybe another scam. Yeah, I was going to say, I bet he found some new people to scam. Mm-hmm. In Florida, he tried to take advantage of the Florida land boom, selling land and promising a 200% return on investments in just 60 days. But little mm-hmm. did investors know that some of this land was underwater. <sighs> yep, he was selling land that was underwater in swamp land. That was unusable. Wow. I mean, he's creative. Mm-hmm. So he was arrested in February of 1926 in Florida and charged with violating the trust and security laws of Florida. And he was sentenced to one year in prison there. He again appealed these charges and released on bond. Why? Why would you release him? So he can go scam somewhere else. He fled to Tampa. Oh, okay, not too far. Mm -hmm. He didn't scam anyone this time. He was like, I actually have to hide for a minute. (laughs) He disguised himself by shaving his head and growing out a mustache and boarded a ship bound for Italy and pretended to be a merchant. So his goal was Mm -hmm. to get back to Italy. He was like, hey, once I get there, we'll be good and clear. And in all of this, did he just leave his hot wife behind? Yeah, I'll get to that. He did. Okay. I just wondered... He boarded a ship, but he didn't realize it was stopping in New Orleans before heading to Italy. And that was his last port in the U.S. And police were on to him. And he was Uh arrested in New Orleans. And he had to serve seven more years in prison. Wow. Wow. He didn't make it very far. Yeah. He was released in 1934 and immediately deported. His wife Rose stayed in the U.S. and divorced him in 1937. Okay, get it, girl. Well, and this poor girl probably had to, like, everyone in Boston probably hated her. I know. It could not be fun. But she got scammed, too. Yes, 100%. As far as we know, she had no idea of what was going on. Yeah. So, what do you think he did in Italy? He continued to con people. Of course he did. But in his last years, he was very poor and in bad health, working jobs few and far between. And in 1941, he had a heart attack. And by 1948, he was mostly blind. After a brain hemorrhage, his left arm and leg were pretty much paralyzed. He died in a hospital in Rio de Janeiro on January 18th, 1949. He ended up in Brazil scamming people there, too. Not on. Yeah. He's a world traveler slash scammer. Not a good thing to be. No. And I mean, I now understand why... 
it was named after him. Okay, it makes so much sense when you hear, like, he did not quit the scheme. Yes. No matter what, put him in prison for as long as you want. He's going to just go back and do it again. Well, and he's going to have prisoners paying him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet he did stuff in there, too. Yeah. So despite him not being the first one to have this Rob Peter to pay Paul scheme, he was the first very well-known one, giving it his namesake. Since then, there have been many more Ponzi schemes. Most notably in recent years, the 2008 Bernie Madoff scam, where he scammed investors out of $65 billion, like I had said earlier. In 2012, the scam of Alan Sanford, where his bank, the Stanford International Bank, scammed investors out of $7 billion. And the BitConnect cryptocurrency, where they scammed investors out of $2.6 million between 2016 and 2018. Ponzi schemes have also been referenced in pop culture a lot, including Boardwalk Empire and Downton Abbey. So it's something that I'm sure happened many years before Charles started doing it. But Mm -hmm. he was the first very well-known one. And so now that's why it's called Ponzi Schemes. And it's made me a little scared to invest my money. But that's the story of Charles Ponzi, Jenna. Okay, that was the exact same thing I was going to say. I was like, let me proceed to go hide all of my money, like, under my mattress. Right. Yeah, no trust for anyone. Wow, that was so interesting. I didn't know any of it. I love scamming things and con things and, like, heists. I don't know why yeah, that stuff really interests me. I love a good me. heist. No, I totally get it. That is so interesting. He was very committed to the scheme. Mm-hmm. And very committed to avoiding regular labor, just avoiding a normal job. But, like, he also had to be so smart but so dumb. Yes. To me, it sounds like he was too smart for the jobs that he could get. And so he's like bored with it and just knew he could make money faster. So he tried to. Yeah. And that ended up getting him in trouble. Well, that's my story for this week. Yeah. That was so interesting and different than what we've done. I'm glad to know the origin. Yeah. I thought it was really cool. I was like, I gotta look into this. I liked it. Um, thank you all for listening. Your cat wanted to say goodbye. <laughs> kitty went right up to the microphone. Come on, kitty. Say goodbye. We love you. She's Thanks for listening. Sniff it. She's going to oh, lick she's it cute. probably. Okay, we'll see you on the next time, guys. Thanks for listening. Stay wild, stay weird. Yeah, thanks for being here. Bye.